How the hell is this dude still alive? He is not a dude. You're a dude. This, this is a man. A handsome, muscular man. I'm muscular. Who are you kidding, Quill? Just focus on the adult content and spoilers. Yeah, right. It's true. And now, Binge Mode Marvel. One to go. Where is he? Did we just lose? Why would you do that? We're in the end game now. emotional start i can see you kind of fading away i don't want to go don't worry five years from now i'll bring you back jay great (laughs) and it'll be like no time has passed it'll be perfect everybody gets five years older i stay the same it's incredible what a deal for the people who got snapped it's true honestly it's an incredible deal for everybody who got snapped you didn't have to walk through the ruined streets of San Francisco or live without the New York Mets. All things considered, would you not rather be snapped knowing that everybody gets to come back? Mm. I mean, I feel like this question gets to the, the heart of everything. <laughs> so that's a big one. <laughs> that's a big one. Would you rather be the person who brought everyone back? But had to over, carry that over, grief so and, and misery for five years. It's so overrated. It's like it was so much work and Scott turning into a baby and then turning old and then the whole rigmarole. Tony having to give up his life. It's like they they did so much work on it. I don't want it. I just want to <laughs> step through the portal, be there for the big fight and then go back to school with people who I don't know. Meanwhile, I am the same age and it's five years later, like Peter. That's a weird one, right? Peter's like still in high school and everybody else is in college, ostensibly, or should be. The far from home thing is an interesting high school dynamic to dive into (laughs) when we get there. Yeah. Uh, In case you couldn't tell, this is Binge Mode Marvel. Welcome. (laughs) Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a creep episode. The best. Joining me today, now that he's finished embarrassing me in front of the wizards, it's your favorite Avenger, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I'm sorry. Either I can't or he won't. But I can record Binge Mode Marvel, where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore. That inspired it. Please make the journey to Nidavalier with us by following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us. Give us the five star ratings or we will not act.
activate your iron spider suit. An iron spider suit is gross. <laughs> That's my take. I don't like it. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive, Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Binge Mode, Harry Potter, Binge Mode, Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly for free, exclusively on Spotify. Also, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to discuss Peter's best pop culture references. It's not like he does a lot of them. It's like three of them. And don't forget to head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. It pairs wonderfully with the latest Stark nanotech. Love that bleeding edge nanotech. Really Love something. the nanotech. It's better than the fucking iron spider legs, which are disgusting. Tony's outfit for walking around the park. We have some notes coming on that later. <laughs> Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we journeyed to Mount Bashanga to discuss Black Love Panther. It. Love it. And today, we're diving deep. Deep. So deep, in fact, that we will be doing two pods. On 2018's mega event, Avengers Infinity War, this is part one of our Infinity War podcast. Check back next time for part two. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from this film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and the wider Marvel canon. So get ready to kick names and take ass, because it's time to head to Titan right after this. Rabbits, fire up the pods, because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Avengers Infinity War by opening the Bifrost. Yes, it still works. We got Stormbreaker now and accessing the knowledge of the Nine Realms. Outer space. Following the events of Thor Ragnarok, Thanos' forces... Hold Thor's ship carrying the surviving, rapidly dwindling population of Asgard. Rapidly. It's Rough been a traumatic time. Asgard. Oh, boy. If I could paraphrase our good friend Thor, ruling can be tough. I mean, it's, it's you know, I just, again, somebody should have been watching, like, the radar screen or something. <laughs> the fact that Thanos' ship just came up on them is, it's just not great. It's not great. You know what I'm going to say, right? It's its Yara Greyjoy getting eaten out, <laughs> like, in her capital <laughs> ship in the middle of a battle. Oh. Type, like. Listen, when you have a chance for a night with Ilaria, you take it, you know? <laughs> uh, my note, as usual, is going to be what the fuck is Heimdall doing, but. <laughs> this fucking guy. What good is being all seeing if you can't see Thanos coming? Hard to criticize him in this one. He, he, he like gave it all. But OK. Yeah. Well, it's more about what happened, you know, before this moment in time to allow this moment in time. <laughs> oh, God. Great stuff. <laughs> Thor is defeated. Loki on his knees just where I like him. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well he should be he should use his tongue for something other than lying for once <laughs> <laughs> Woo. 
already with one infinity stone in his grasp after wrecking Xandar. Steve, give us some Petey Wells for Xandar's off-screen annihilation. <laughs> Literally, wait, describe mention. Described as an annihilation by the god of thunder. <laughs> I don't feel so good. <laughs> Thanos proves too strong even for stuff. Hulk. He demands the Tesseract, which they don't <laughs> call him the god of mischief for nothing, folks. Loki secretly saved from Odin's treasure vault amid the destruction of Asgard. Loki gives the Tesseract to Thanos to save Thor's life. A very touching moment. It is touching. It's really sweet. Heimdall, badly injured, calls the Bifrost, sending Bruce hurtling home to Earth. I have one small note. Just <laughs> Bruce? That was a weird <laughs> choice, right? <laughs> Don't you think that was a weird choice? There's several, like, no, no Thor? No, no Loki even? You're not going to send anybody else? You're going to get Thor? you get Hulk out of there alone? Okay. It's a great note. I mean, if I were if I were Thor, I'd be pretty offended by that. But instead, yeah. Thor chooses to say that Heimdall is his best friend. That was weird. When, when was I, I have no indication that Heimdall and Thor were that I missed that close. one. Yeah. I missed that one. One more slight against Zachary Levi in the Warriors 3. Heimdall getting the best friend label here. After Heimdall's brave act Thanos kills him Steve give us the whales for the all seeing all hearing Heimdall because not only does he not see <laughs> or hear so good he does he not feel so good <laughs> he does not at all feel Heimdall. so good I don't feel so good and moreover he does not want to go but he's gotta <laughs> Loki, sneaky guy that he is, attempts to assassinate Thanos and is killed for real this time. Petey Wales for the god of mischief. Devastating. He's died many times before. And I have an inkling that he's coming back. Let's hear those whales. I don't feel so good. As Thor says, he thinks it really might be true this time, Jay. Devastating. Thor can only watch. Helpless. Thanos destroys Thor's vessel. Casting the god of thunder into the icy vacuum of space. Bruce lands in New York, crashing through the roof of the New York Sanctum, just as Dr. Strange and Wong are on their way to the local deli. (laughs) Amazing scene. Absolutely incredible sequence. Jason, let me know if you ever want a metaphysical ham on rye. Happy to pick one up for you. I know. Thanos. Bruce Banner tells everyone with quite a bit of gumption and severity is coming. Dr. Stranger's reply, absolutely iconic. Who? I love that. Tony and Pepper back together again are walking in the park. They're talking about their future. 
Tony is like, hey, I, I think I'm going to settle down. Pepper is like, then why'd you put the arc reactor back on your chest? He's like, ah, e, ah, oh, ah. And then he gives a very, very soft promise of no more surprises. It's soft. He doesn't even, if you listen back to it, he doesn't actually promise. He raises the possibility yeah. that he could <laughs> promise. <laughs> Amazing. And just as he's lobbing that soft promise up, Strange and Banner arrive via sling ring portal to tell Stark that the fate of the universe, no big deal, hangs in the balance. Also, congrats on the wedding. <laughs> I love this part of the movie so much. When do we talk about Tony's outfit? Do we do that now? Do we wait? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, that's... Ew. <laughs> it's... I... I don't know what to say about this. Obviously, the nanotech is remarkable. You know, there's a lot of functionality. But in terms of the fashion choice, he looks like he's like jumping into a Fortnite game. Like, I don't <laughs> know what's happening with Tony. Is he storing all of his controllers in secret high tops that he's wearing underneath his camo oh, athleisure a... bell bottoms? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we, we all understand... Uh, why the bottom of his pants look the way they, look the way they do? There, there's just you know, that's a structural thing, and it has to be like that to uh, cover for the four-inch think platforms. Wong and Strange do the Infinity Stone download for Tony, for Bruce, and just in case anyone who's watching the movie has not seen. The prior 18. Right, yes. <laughs> Strange reveals that he is the keeper of the time stone. The move, they decide, is to find Vision, who's in possession of the mind stone. Only problem is they don't know where Tough he stuff. is. He has Whoops. not checked in amid his rampant fuck fest with Wanda in Edinburgh. I love that if Tony went from... I'm going to legitimately keep Wanda prisoner to I don't know where they are. There has to be a middle ground, right? <laughs> Between those two things. Well, you know, Wanda's on the other team and Vision turned off his transponder, Jay. He's evolving. As Tony said, I love when Bruce says you lost another super pot. <laughs> I know. I mean, fair point. Imagine if you're Bruce Banner. You've been gone for literally years. You return. Almost everything has changed. You find out the Avengers have broken up, which is what Tony tells him here, right? There's only one person who can find Vision. It's Steve Rogers, which is an issue because, as Tony tells Bruce, the Avengers are no more. They're not on speaking terms. And Bruce is processing all of this. His interaction with Thanos, and he's like, the one thing that hasn't changed is that you've lost another super bot. How is this the only point. thing that hasn't changed? Unfucking believable. Tony, honestly, in one of the more touching moments in the entire MCU, takes out the little flip phone that Cap mailed to him at the end of Civil War, carrying it with him. Remember, he's out on a walk in the park. I mean, it's on his person all this time, just like the Arc Reactor Nano, nanotech. Incredible stuff. But... Does he get that call off? No, he does not. Because he had to spend that five seconds making fun of the fact that it was a flip phone. And then Thanos forces 
arrive. Across town, Peter Parker's spidey sense goes off. He slips away from his schoolmates and streaks toward an alien ship that is hanging over the New York skyline. Spidey sense, finally. Love to see it. I, I have some notes for everybody on the school bus. And for Peter, honestly, like get away from the bus window. I know they're all distracted, but you're literally hanging against the window when you put the mask on. Can we take a little more care with our secret identity? He's excited. Yeah, I mean, he almost dies like five minutes after this. (laughs) Peter quickly joins Strange, Tony and Wong as they face off against Ebony Maw and Cull Obsidian. Two of Thanos' top lieutenants. I have a question for you. Yeah. Ebony Maw, in contention for the top spot of toughest hangs in the entire MCU. It's an extremely tough hang. An absolute insufferable, righteous asshole. I keep hearing how your power uh, can't be matched and then... You froze in the vacuum of space just like the rest of them. Why does it keep getting matched? Cull Obsidian at least just Gets on with it. Doesn't fucking talk a lot. Anyway, Banner would like to help, but he can't get his Hulk up right now. Mm. Happens, uh, in the end, it happens to it happens. a lot of Avengers. <laughs> it happens to a Tony lot of... Tony noted in the very first Avengers. In the end, Maw, unable to separate Strange from his stone, knocks the sorcerer unconscious and beams him up to the ship. Stark and Peter follow. You're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. It's one of my favorite lines on the whole MCU. I love that so much. In Scotland, meanwhile, Vision and Wanda, just on vacation. They're having a great time, having a lot of sex. They should have stayed in bed, as they realize, when they are attacked (laughs) in pursuit of fried kebabs by Proxima (laughs) Midnight and Corvus Glaive, the other two members of Thanos' Black Order. However... All is not lost. Is that Captain America's music? This is one of the loudest screams in the theater that I can remember. It was shrieks. It was electric. Shrieks. Shrieks matched only by the shrieks every person emitted thinking about Cap and his beard. I'll say this also. Hair care on the run has been good. Like, Nat, her color, she's really been keeping up with the color. Like, her blonde is great. Amazing moment in the gag reel for Infinity War where there's like a gust of wind or their wind machines, whatever, blowing her hair. And ScarJo turns to the camera and does like the L'Oreal because you're worth it. Like, she's doing a hair (laughs) ad. It's really funny. (laughs) The timely arrival of Cap, Falcon, Black Widow. Called by Bruce, who picked up the damaged flip phone after Tony went off to space, saves the day. And the Mind Stone for the moment. But Vision, badly injured, can't phase. Meanwhile, in space, <laughs> the Guardians of the Galaxy mm. answer a distress signal, but they argue about it. They're like, should we save lives? Okay, yes, we'll do it. They find nothing but wreckage and bodies floating in the vacuum. And one of those floating bodies is still alive, folks. It's Thor. Thor and Gamora, much to Quill's discomfort, bond over having messed up families. And the group decides to split up. Thor, Rocket, and Groot head to Nidavellir, 
to have a new hammer forged while Quill, Gamora, Drax, and Mantis speed to nowhere to stop Thanos from acquiring the Reality Stone from the Collector. Also one of the toughest hangs in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Flashback. Gamora's home world. Thanos' forces. Massacring the population in accordance with Thanos' philosophy of balance. 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 Thanos. Takes a liking to young Gamora. She's fierce. She's a fighter. And he saves her life. Gives her a dagger, which she still carries to this day. The present aboard the Benatar, Gamora makes Peter promise that he won't let Thanos take her alive. Because she knows some information that Thanos desperately wants to know. The location of the Soul Stone. Peter agrees. And even in that moment in the theater, everyone was like, he won't do it. But then he almost, anyway, spoiler, we we see what he does. The team (laughs) arrives on nowhere, seemingly just in time. Gamora strikes, stabbing Thanos in the heart with the dagger. The mad Titan dies. It's all over, folks. Petey wails for Thanos. Oh, no, it's all an illusion created by (laughs) Thanos using the reality stone, which he had already taken from the collector. Damn it. Thanos takes Gamora. After foiling Peter's attempt... To honor Gamora's request. He pulls the trigger, but bubbles come out. Crushing moment. I told you to go right. Crushing moment. moment. Not as rough as giving the reality stone to the collector in the first place, but really rough. Uh, It was, it turned out to be a bad move. What kind of idiot would? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Love that. Cap, Sam, Nat, Wanda, Vision. Arrive at Avengers HQ with James Rhodes' blessing, much to the consternation of salty Secretary Thunderbolt Ross. Here's the thing. If you're so anti-superheroes and you don't want the Avengers around causing trouble and Cap and and Nat and Vision and and Scarlet Witch, a.k.a. Wanda Maximoff, then why don't you like why doesn't your military do anything? Where are they ever? There's like a whole fucking alien invasion in New York. There's no one to be seen. It's a wizard, Tony Stark, and fucking Hulk who can't turn into Hulk fighting off aliens. You guys are nowhere. Now you're complaining about it. Just all bark, no bite for Thunderbolt, as usual. As as Steve noted when we were prepping for this pod, like, he literally knows where they are. Does he send anyone? No. Why Why don't you send the seals in or something? Why don't you do something about it? Fucking Thunderbolt. Pathetic. (laughs) For the Avengers, it's a warm reunion that gets warmer still when the group realizes Bruce is there too. You see him looking at Cap and Nat like, yeah. How many sessions did you guys get in on the run? (laughs) Yeah. The team decides that Vision Stone must be removed and destroyed to keep it out of Thanos' hands. And save Vision's life because apparently they don't trade lives and apparently the price of Vision's life would be too high. (laughs) To which I can only say, are we sure? I know. Can't Vision just like fly away to space? Can he just like fly (laughs) out into outer space and keep going until they figure some other thing out? That's like... 
he's an android. He can go into space. He can fly. Just keep flying. Keep flying. Injured, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's I don't true. Know. <laughs> But there's only one place on Earth where they can even attempt a procedure like this. Wakanda. In space aboard Ebony Maw's ship, Maw tortures Strange in an attempt to make him give up the stone. Meanwhile, Stark, the cloak of levitation, and Peter plot their next move. Great look for our guy, the cloak of levitation. What a sequence. Incredible movie for the cloak of levitation. I, I love when Tony observes... Boy, you're a loyal piece of outerwear. (laughs) (laughs) They take out Ma using Peter's alien reference and rescue Strange. I I just have to say, though, amazing moment. Great stuff from Peter with the the pop culture references always. Tony saying the kid's seen more movies. How does he know what kind of cinephile Ebony Ma is? Maybe Ebby, maybe dear Ebby is just out there crushing episodes of the big picture. Maybe when his Spotify wrapped pops up at the end of the year, he has listened to every episode of The Big Picture on the Ringer Podcast Network. You don't know, Tony. It could happen. The group decides to confront Thanos on his own turf. Next stop, Titan. On Thanos' capital ship, Thanos and Gamora argue about ideology. It's clear nothing will dissuade him from his course. Resources are scarce. And he intends to kill half of all life in the universe to account for that. Can't talk him out of it at this point. (laughs) He's just not going to be able to do it. Uh, And he thinks, of course, that it's a a kindness. Refers to himself as generous. Thanos is torturing Nebula, who some time ago snuck aboard his vessel, attempted to assassinate him. We know, of course, from the end of Guardians 2 that this was her intention. And he will continue to torture her until Gamora tells him the location of the Soul Stone, a secret only she knows. After they leave, Nebula breaks free. She calls Mantis and tells the Guardians to meet her on Titan, where Tony, Strange, and Peter have just crash-landed. Not knowing each other, the two teams have a brief fight until they all realize they are here for the same thing, to kill Thanos. Strange uses the Time Stone to scan as many possible outcomes as he can in their fight with Thanos. Of the over 14 million he views, they only win once. Amazing take coming up later in the pod from Zach Cram on this math. (laughs) Can't wait to share this with the world. Also, for the record, I think now for the rest of my life, when I watch Infinity War, I will see the gif of you going through the 14 million scenarios (laughs) as Doctor Strange from the Benjamin Marvel trailer. Great strange movie. Oh my God, incredible, strange movie. Great, strange movie. Unbelievable performance from Cumberbatch. When Tony's like, I'm sorry, what do you do? Make balloon animals? The way he looks at him and says, protecting your reality, douchebag. (laughs) Amazing. On the way to Nita Valir, Rocket and Thor really bond. Actually, like, an extraordinarily moving sequence. There's a lot of comedy in the Thor Guardians mashups across the film, but this particular scene and everything that Thor reveals about loss and grief and anger is just really, really, really sad and touching. Rocket gifts Thor a new cybernetic eye, which Rocket once carried inside of his own anus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. When they arrive, 
they discover that the dwarves who work the kiln, work the forge of Nidavellir, have been largely murdered by Thanos. The forge, the star that powers it, have gone dark. Eitri, Dinklage himself, in the house. Dinklage himself. Is the only survivor. I have a note here. Thanos, this is not in line with Thanos' code. He killed right, all of them, them all. but one? Right, kill half of them. Kill what's half that? Them. Yeah, what's that? What is that? That was just, I mean, that just goes to show you, he picks and chooses. The guy's picking and choosing. As he says in Endgame, it's like it becomes personal. Like he wants to kill everybody. I, I, again, this is, he's a, his ideals are quite malleable. He's moving the goalposts once again. Thanos. Can't trust that guy. <laughs> Spoiler. On Vormir, Thanos sacrifices Gamora's life to retrieve the Soul Stone as the Red Skull <laughs> looks on. What? Wow. I loved it. Amazing. Uh, Wales, Petey Wales for Gamora does not want to go. I don't feel so good. Four stones down, two to go, folks. In Wakanda. Old friends unite. The plan is for the Avengers and the Wakandan troops to hold off Thanos' army while Shuri carries out the complex procedure to separate Vision from the Mind Stone. The fight is awesome, spectacular. But our hero's defenses slowly crack under the assault. Until, on Native Valir, Thor takes the full power of the star, forges his new weapon. Hammer, axe, branch of Groot. Eitri's guidance, Groot's arm. I love that Groot's arm is the handle. I just think that's fantastic. It's so good. Put, put down his video game just long enough to make a really valuable contribution. <laughs> Stormbreaker. Thor, Rocket, and Groot arrive in Wakanda just in time to turn back Thanos' army. That is Thor's entrance in Wakanda's. It's pretty great. That's another electric moment. Another electric <gasps> moment in the theater. Meanwhile, on Titan, Strange, Tony, Spider-Man, the rest of the Guardians, with a late assist from Nebula, and against incredible odds, manage to subdue Thanos. But before they can pry that fucking glove off his purple hand, Quill learns that Thanos murdered Gamora, and he flips out, and in his anger and rage, the moment is lost, and the battle continues. Very tough one. We'll talk more about this as we as we go across our two parts. Obviously, a lot of the 14,605,001 stuff is tied up in this, but this is a this is a rough moment for Peter Quill. Rough it's, it's, moment for Peter Quill. It's extremely rough moment, and honestly, he's got to sit with that one for a little while. You blew also, it, bro. Like you blew it. Does Thanos have stickum on the inside of the gauntlet or something? It took a really long time to pry that list. He's just got fat, fat, fat hands. Oh, God, Quill. Very tough look for our guy, Peter Quill. In Wakanda, Thanos' forces lure Wanda away from Vision. Corvus Glaive strikes, Vision fights back, and the battle spills outside into the forest below. Before Shuri can complete the procedure, one by one, the children of Thanos fall to the Avengers. On Titan, our heroes surrender to Thanos' might. Strange barters with Thanos, the time stone for Stark's life. 
the time stone in hand, Thanos teleports to Earth to collect the final stone. This is the end game. All now rests on that one chance in 14 million. Thanos arrives on Earth to pry the stone from Vision. With five stones in his possession, he takes down Earth's mightiest heroes with ease. And in desperation, Wanda finally concedes to destroying the stone to keep it from the Mad Titan. It shatters, killing Vision. Steve, give us those PD whales for Viz. I don't feel so good. The infinity war of Vision's PD whales. <laughs> ah, but Thanos is the master of time and this is no oh, time no. at all. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> he presses rewind. Rebuilding the stone, bringing Vision back from the dead, prize the Mind Stone from Vision's forehead, killing him rough. again as Wanda watches in horror. Steve, once again, I am distressed to say we need the PD Whales for Vision, who does not feel so good. I don't feel so good. He did not feel good either time. He wanted to go the first time. I think the second time he did not want to go. And they should have fucking let him. Because, folks, the Infinity Gauntlet is now complete. Yikes. Despite a spirited late sally from Thor, Mm. Thanos triumphs. He snaps and then teleports away. Steve... Whales for <laughs> half the beings in the universe, <laughs> including oh Black Panther. I don't feel so good. Bucky Barnes. I don't feel so good. Groot. I don't feel so good. Wanda. I don't Sam, feel so good. I don't feel Mantis, so good. Drax. I don't feel so good. Peter Quill. I don't feel oh, so man. good. Doctor Strange, and of course, I don't feel so uh, good. Peter Parker, who, in his own words does not feel so good, and does not want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go, sir. Please. Please, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Tough one. Tough beat for the Earth's Mightiest Heroes (laughs) and everybody else. Tough beat for the New York Mets snapped entirely out of existence, as we'll later learn. Boy, I gotta say, the Peter one really hit in the theater. Boy. It really oh, did. It did, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, it really, really did. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes after a long day at work, you just need to unwind. And on That's an it. unnamed planet, Thanos takes his well-earned rest at last. Looking out on a half-depleted, and I think he miscalculated here, deeply ungrateful universe. Yeah, it's like, guess what? A lot of people are mad at you, Thanos, now. <laughs> In the post credit scene, Nick Fury and Maria Hill are driving around monitoring energy signals over Wakanda, as you do. A little late on this from little, these yeah, two. Like, wh- Come on, folks. When all of a sudden there's a car crash and people on the street start turning to ash, including Hill and including Fury, Petey Whales... <laughs> For Maria Hill and super spy Nick Fury. Boy. Who did not want to go, either of them. I don't feel so good. But before Fury 
turns into a cloud of ash, he manages to place a beeper call across the galaxy to a person who we later find out is Captain Marvel. How much of Nick Fury's life takes place in some sort of vehicular accident? It's all just constant car crashes with this guy. Or helicarrier crashes, man. Everything is crashing. It's like, don't ever get into any kind of vehicle with Nick Fury or Maria Hill. (laughs) I guarantee you, if you enter a structure with them, that structure will explode. That's a wrap. Or implode, (laughs) or like a dimensional portal will open and swallow it. Something will happen. Stay far away from them. Hawkeye's lucky the farm is still standing at the end of this. I mean, they're still cleaning up the Triskelion, as we learned. So, Jason. Yes. When I'm done, half of humanity will still be alive. I hope they remember you. Well, and that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is balance. And on that note, before we dive in, part two of our Infinity War discussion, we'll be focusing on the plot in the movie and our thematically driven character by character discussion. So that's coming in part two. Check back for that. Let's talk a little bit about the film's development now, though. Let's do that. Released in April 2018, this is the seventh film of phase three of the MCU, third film in the Avengers franchise. It was filmed. Uh, in tandem with Black Panther, back to back with Endgame. Originally planned as Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2. Part 2 was, of course, eventually rebranded as Endgame to avoid confusion over whether this would be one split film, a la Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2. We still took our inspiration from it. Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2. You're on pitch mode. (laughs) Absolutely. Creative team, Kevin Feige, of course on the EP directed by the Russo brothers, Anthony and Joe written by Chris Marcus and Stephen McFeely back again, the first Avengers duty for the Russos and Marcus and McFeely, though they of course previously worked together on winter soldier and civil war, the latter of which essentially an Avengers movie, an Avengers mm-hmm. movie and all that name, mm-hmm. uh, same writing and filmmaking team also made Endgame, which is uh, great for that through line. Inspiration for this movie included the essential comics canon written by Jim Starlin, the great Jim Starlin, Thanos creator Jim Starlin. I'll break that down in the Sanctum and uh, Infinity by Jonathan Hickman and some of his other uh, his some of his other Avengers work heist movies in a 2017 interview with comicbook.com's bd davis joe russo said structurally with this first film avengers 3 we've been using the smash and grab 90s heist films so there's a real urgency to the film it feels like it adds a level of excitement and relentlessness to the pace of the movie and it's a lot of divergent narratives coming together into a climax love a heist movie love to come together love into it. a climax yeah. it's great it's great, great stuff <laughs> <laughs> How about the cast? <laughs> good, good cast. A few new faces, though, honestly, not many. Mostly are returning faves. Among, among the new faces, Dinklage, Dinklage in the house, Eitri, interesting him. sequence on Nina Valer. Josh Brolin, of course, is this his first credited role 
as Thanos, though he had, as we've mentioned before, he had voiced the the character in uncredited fashion in both Ultron and Guardians. Carrie Coon Love as her. Proxima Midnight, given the leftovers-esque elements of the vanishing yes. wake of the snap. It's it's pretty amazing to have Carrie Coon in this movie. But again, almost the entire cast is comprised of established characters we had spent a lot of time with at this point in the story. It's part of the thrill of it. It's part of the very delicate calculus of how to make the math of the movie work, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. No Ant-Man and no Hawkeye. Just they not in the movie. They get they one took line. A plea, they took a plea deal. <laughs> very tough for them. Now, obviously, they get their, their time and then some in Endgame. I mean, Endgame opens with with Clint. Tough. Yes. Has to be tough, though, to not be in Infinity War. Happy? I love it. Happy Hogan got cut out of this movie. Actually we filmed the scene. Get him out of here. The park scene with Pepper and Tony. Would it surprise you at all to know that in a moment where Pepper and Tony are talking about something really consequential in the future, not only of their lives, but of their relationship and their marriage, that Happy would have been right there. No, it would not surprise you. And in fact, he was. Joe Russo also had a cameo in that in that scene. You can see that deleted scene on, on Disney Plus or the DVD. I'm glad that happened. I think Happy deserved to get cut after the absolute travesty that he presided over during Spider-Man Homecoming. That being the Avengers, uh, the move of Avengers equipment from the tower to the upstate place. It's like, Happy, you failed once again. Terrible work from Happy. Get out of here. Look out your window. Come on, my guy. Check a computer, GPS. Please. Anything, Happy. It's all been building up to this, right? It's like what? I can't even imagine. What is it? Like a five-minute flight? A six-minute flight? Like it can't be (laughs) that long of a flight. And you can't even pay attention during this New York City to upstate New York. That's a great point. I mean, we are talking minutes. 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 (laughs) And Happy's just like, well, I'm checking out. Good night. <laughs> Come on, guy. What about the box office? This is one of the most mm. pricey movies ever made. But it paid off. Sure did. Box office, 678.8 domestically, 1.4 billion dollars internationally, 2.05 billion globally. Jeez. This is a, a movie that legitimately, this and Endgame, changed, changed the business in that mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden it, it, became, uh, it became fine to spend a lot of money on a movie that you know is going to make a lot of money. Right. became the first superhero movie to cross the $2 billion mark. At the time, it also became the fourth highest grossing film of all time, and now it's fifth following Endgame's release which absolutely uh, came together and surged to the top. Oh, God. Rotten Tomatoes. Love Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Infinity War is not two decades old, right? It's 2021. Infinity War came out in 2018. I was, this is the first time during the entire Benjamin Marvel run where I've looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score and I was surprised. The number I saw did not mesh with my recollection of the conversation in real time. 85% among critics. Now, obviously that's not bad. That's not a poor mark, but it's not I, that I'm surprised by that. That's lower than I thought it would be. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about some of the through lines 
of the critical commentary that that maybe informed that. 91% among audience members. Yep. Love to see it. And because we have our character-by-character thematic plot conversation, character arcs, journeys, assessment coming, we're going to talk for a few minutes here today before we get to the sanctum about some, some big picture conversation starters around Infinity War and not only the plot and the theme, but the sensation that it was. As you noted a minute ago, the way it really changed and helped to change Yes. The landscape of movie making and modern day blockbusters. Well, we'll start as always with a little bit of a personal reflection. Do you like the movie, Jason Concepcion? Yeah, I love this movie. Uh, <laughs> I, I think my one note would be, mm-hmm. as I was rewatching it for this, is it's just extremely difficult to watch this movie and then not proceed directly to Endgame, which I did not have time to do. But right. like my, so I, you know, I get done with it and then I, we have to, I have to, pre, we have to prep the stock and then I'm like, yeah, but I, now I want to watch Endgame. I want to go directly to Endgame. Right. Um, I, I, I thought it was fantastic. I think that the big fight in Endgame kind of overshadows some of the fights in this, yeah. but the, this is the, the action scenes in this are fantastic. You know, the early um, fight between Tony and Strange and the Black Order in New York is is really fun. I think this is like quietly one of the funny, like Marvel has a Marvel had by this point had developed this thing where whenever there's a very heavy emotional scene, there will always be like a joke to release the tension. And this was the first movie where I was like, where I really saw that, I could feel it coming and not in a bad way. Like I'm thinking primarily of the scene when Gamora is like, you got to make sure that Thanos doesn't take me alive. And then we get the Drax thinking that he's invisible because he's moving extremely slowly. A scene that like follows this very emotional scene in which Gamora is begging her boyfriend to kill her. And there's a, there's a bunch of other things like that overall. Yeah. I really enjoyed this movie. It's, Again, it's hard for me to not proceed directly to Endgame to get the closure. That's my one note. I got news for you. You got another Infinity War pod, an Ant-Man and the Wasp pod, and a Captain Marvel pod before you get to Endgame. Jason, I love the movie. Mm -hmm. It's definitely in my top three of all MCU movies to date. I can't. Top three. Yeah, top three. But I think there, there are a few things. I think everything that that we're both saying here in this kind of sweeping overview, we'll we'll dive into all of these points more as we go. It makes me really happy to watch and it makes me really sad to watch. Yeah, it's a a gutting movie. Yeah, and I think that the point you made about that balance of levity and intensity, the pace of the movie the balance of the movie, the character pairings. You know, there's if you if you hit pause and you think rationally, like, does it make sense to wait until the 40-minute mark to introduce Captain America into an Avengers movie? Right. The answer is probably no, but somehow it works. And the ability to not only get time with the relationships that we really care about and want to see continue to grow, Tony and Peter would be one example. But then to also introduce this new element, this new dynamic, like watching 
Tony Stark and Doctor Strange interact is one of my favorite parts of the movie. These two yeah, super egos. <laughs> well, it's, it's totally fantastic. I think Strange, very observant when he notes that Tony treats everyone like an employee. What's the line? He says, like, unlike everyone else in your life, I don't work for you. It's so <laughs> yeah. good because that is exactly how Tony acts. He walks into this to the sanctum and it's immediately like, OK, I literally just found out about Thanos like 30 seconds ago. But tell now, me his name again. Yeah. <laughs> but tell I'm me in his charge. name again. Yeah. But now I'm in charge and like I'm going to come up with a plan. It's like you don't even know what's happening here, dude. You just like you don't even know the bad guy's name yet. And I, I love that that dynamic of being able to simultaneously work really quickly and very mm-hmm. organically toward a common, essential, urgent goal. But, you know, and we talked about this all the way back to our, our first uh, team up pod on the Avengers. The filmmakers never lose sight of the fact that it wouldn't be natural for these people to align. And right. That's you, always you, you feel that so consistently throughout this movie, even as they are able to put their egos maybe not fully aside, but just aside enough to be able to move forward. I think also the, you know, we've, we've, we've talked a lot before. We talked about this on our most recent mailbag episode about, you know, Thor and, and the guardians and just the really surprising jubilation that stemmed from a lot of these character groupings. And, you know, of course, if you're particularly attached to a given character, maybe there are swaths of the film where you really miss that person or you wish you had more time with a given character in a given setting. And there's always the risk when you separate characters and you send them to different places and you know like like tony is not on earth tony stark is not on earth for the primary battle right but somehow it works and i think it connects to that again that balance between the grand and the intimate the the battle of wakanda is massive and sweeping and titanic and what's happening on titan which we're cutting in between swinging between those two those two fights is so hyper personal not only because of the history and the 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 pain and the loss that is informing why somebody like peter quill for example is standing there but because it's this small group of people in this setting where nobody else is and the contrast between those is is so stark and yet it it, it just it, it fits together and blends together so seamlessly I love the movie. I'm really excited to spend multiple hours talking about it with you. I was curious to ask you uh, about your memory of seeing it for the first time, because I think that's something that's been fun for us to to reflect on as we've gone is like, how did it, you know, because again, it's not an old movie, but we have some distance from it now. And we also have the distance of how it fits into the story after Endgame. But when you saw it for the first time, before Endgame, before you knew how it was going to wrap, how did it sit with you? My reaction to most of the movies, particularly in phase three, was some version of, I can't believe that I'm actually seeing this on a movie screen. And so to see Thanos now for the first time, the direct, like the direct and active villain in the film, fighting people, beating up the Hulk. (laughs) Yeah. Wearing the gauntlet. um, That was amazing as a comic, as a comic book fan. I, I think that. I was just completely in awe of that. And then with the just incredible cast of characters that you that we had by this point, the thing that just jumped out at me was one, that kind of really wonderful feeling when you've gone down the road with a cast of characters or 
you know, and they appear again. Captain America, you mentioned showing up 40 minutes into the movie. There is a wonderful, ah, there's our friend Cap. He's here. Absolutely. It's what it's it's really a fantastic feeling, even, you know, seeing Vision and Wanda and just being like, oh, I wonder what have they been up to since the last time I saw them in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that was a grand feeling of just being like, here are these here are these characters I love spending time with and they're back. And you know, I think it's underrated how good Marvel, the Russo brothers, are at giving you that their back introduction like Mm -hmm. that here they are moment here's cap again after years on the run here is here's banner and nat meeting again and really just like giving it to you and then the other thing that stood out to me watching it was again we have now you have this incredible cast of characters a black panther in the mix he of course was in uh, civil war but like with an even wider cast of characters, you've got the Guardians in the mix with the Avengers now, you've got Doctor Strange in the mix with the Avengers now, was how good Marvel is at these huge, epic action scenes Yeah, that give you a, a feeling of the synergy of the abilities of these characters. It's not just like mm, punch, mm-hmm. punch, punch, kick, kick, right. kick, throw somebody through a building. You know, uh, think of after uh, the fight on Titan, after they lose control of Thanos because Peter Quill flips out, right? You get that scene of Peter swinging to and fro and 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 saving, P- saving Mantis and saving yes. Drax. Yeah. After the moon comes down. Yeah. After the moon comes down. And then you have Doctor Strange pulling out all the stops to try and defeat Thanos one on one, turning this like storm of debris into like green moths. And then you have uh, Tony like, you know, pushing his nanotech suit to the absolute like edge to try and defeat this guy. And and you have the same thing in the Battle of Wakanda with I I thought particularly interesting was you have like two flying characters. You have War Machine and you have Falcon, who theoretically in lesser hands might have like, uh, you know, like been kind of like operating within the same kind of like action space. But then. You know, you have Sam kind of like flitting around, shooting his guns and then War Machine saying like, OK, move out of the way. I'm going to drop like heavy ordnance. And so you have this real mix of characters or, or even like the fun throwing two characters together that you'd never expect to see together, like, uh, at, you know, like Bucky Barnes and Rocket. And the way he like picks Rocket up and they do that little Amazing. kind of like pirouette yeah. move. There's just... <laughs> All these little pairs and trios and quartets and the way their abilities kind of mix together, that's an underrated part of why these movies work so well and why the action scenes, for the most part, I think we've been uh, critical of some of the big fights that have just kind of like stretched on Age of Ultron, where are you? But (laughs) I think for the most part, and particularly Phase 3, Infinity War and Endgame, I think that ability to creatively mix the uh, abilities of characters is why these action scenes are just so, so fun. And for a comic book fan, and so absolutely thrilling because that's the stuff, you know, when I was a kid reading this stuff that I would always imagine in my mind, like this, right. the, the way these characters would work together. I, I love that. That's such a, that's such a great point. And I, you know, I remember when we did our Avengers pod, you citing, the thrill of the moment when Tony just 
again, oh, it feels yeah. so natural, the flow of it, that he turns and fires his repulsors off of Cap's shield, right? And that despite yeah. all the tension, all of the disagreement, that they could find that rhythm and that flow together. And this is that exponentially, right? Uh, yeah. Across dozens of characters and multiple settings and sequences. And it's just amazing. I, my, one, my, my, my one note on uh, War Machine dropping the artillery, <laughs> maybe do it outside of the bubble. Onto the the large collection of the opposing forces. Just one, I don't know, one thought. This is one of the theater going experiences that I remember the the the, the most. That that I have the strongest recollection of. First of all, I remember that we talked about it right after. Did a podcast mm-hmm. on it. <laughs> Wild to think about that. I saw this at the ArcLight in West Hollywood yeah. with our dear friend Christopher Ryan. It's a who, fantastic spot to see movies. It's a great one. I'm going to I'm going to share this with you. I slacked Chris and I said, Chris, I have a question for you. Do you remember seeing Infinity War for the first time? Like where I saw it? Anything about the experience? When, where, with whom? And he said, and this isn't a trick question. Like you and I saw it together and cried in each other's (laughs) arms, right? (laughs) So that's a tough one for me, but I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it. And I... I remember specifically how much fun I had seeing these character pairings together that I had not anticipated. That's it's always great. How impressed great. I was with the flow and pace and clip of the movie where uh, I one of the bits of of magic and storytelling that always blows me away I've mentioned this before with, uh, with one of my favorite novels, Cavalier and Clay, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. When you're in a certain moment and you get really attached to it and you don't want to leave it, you do. You go to the next scene and you resent the fact almost instinctively that you're not where you just were with the people you were enjoying spending that time with. And then because the next thing is also so gripping and so highly executed, you're back in and then you feel that way and the cycle repeats. And this movie's like that, I think. Yeah. I and you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk in a few minutes about the idea of stakes because that was one of the big narratives in the wake of the film. I, but I, I'm, I'm here to talk about that. Yeah, I'm excited to get to that in a few minutes. But I'll just say now as a teaser, <laughs> I was freely weeping <laughs> in my seat in the movie theater. <laughs> it will shock no one to hear. And it's not because I just I wasn't in that moment thinking, hmm, what does it mean for the next Avengers movie in phase three and for phase four and the future of the MCU if these characters who are clearly the focal point of that future just vanished off my screen? I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking of how absolutely heart wrenching it is to see Tony and Peter in that moment to know that all Peter wanted to do was try to level up and help and fight the pride on his face when Tony knights him as an Avenger for Tony on the wake of a conversation with Pepper about maybe having a child in a moment with this person who has he misled many times? Yes, we've chronicled that in full, but who ultimately has opened up a part of Tony's heart and growth that had as big of an impact on Tony's life as almost anything else. And to watch him 
vanish in his hands is is just gutting. And to pull that off at the scale that they did, I think is an incredible achievement. So I have a very, very, very vivid, powerful memory of watching this for the first time and being really, really awed by it and so eager to return to it again. And every time I have returned to it again, it's it's yet to let me down. I love it. I think one of the most absolutely brutal and heartbreaking moments in all of these movies, I think for me, the most brutal is Vision talking Wanda into destroying the gem in his head and how long it takes to do it. Like she's to commit to it. It's not like just like snappy. It's done. She's like burning it out of his head. He's telling her it's fine. It's don't worry about it. It's okay. Like this is the right thing to do. Heartbreaking that she has to do that to the person she loves. Does it. Then Thanos brings him back and she has to watch him die again. Brutal. <laughs> that is an absolutely brutal. savage and heartbreaking. It's so brutal. And then just the way he pale and corpse like the way he just falls to the ground. Slack his features slack. Just all, really terrible. That's the one that sticks with me. And then her we don't get the PD moment, right? Where she gets to say anything, but she's just cradling him as she drifts away and turns into the ashes. Really terrible, awful, awful moment and heartbreaking. And why I just like, when I watch this movie, I'm like, I gotta watch Endgame. I can't leave it like, I can't leave them like this. <laughs> I know. Ah, that, that connectivity across the films is really, really remarkable. The internet culture in the wake of the film is a, a fun thing to talk about for a minute. Like, Meme heaven. I mean, obviously, I don't feel so good as one of the like proto memes of the last few years. Thanos alone. I mean, Thanos, Thanos. <laughs> yeah, Thanos is one of the most memeable characters, probably the single most memeable character throughout the entire MCU. Do you have a favorite Thanos meme? You know, obviously, it's just like the picture set of him snapping is is incredible. Great That's one. it's just very usable across many different uh, type of expressions. <laughs> And then, you know, there's the there's the critical response. So let's, let's talk about that for a minute. We we hinted at this a few moments ago. Certainly every piece of criticism on the film is is unique and there are specific arguments and and variances across the pieces don't want to imply that there's any um that there's just one through line or like create a straw man here, but a a pattern certainly that you can recognize is that this element of the double-edged sword of the idea of 10 years of Marvel heading into Infinity War was a problem for some viewers. You know, there are also multiple aspects of that. There's the fact that that was something people were thinking about heading into it, right? Yeah. What what does it mean if I haven't seen not only the prior two Avengers movies and Civil War, but every other movie in the MCU. This was a conversation point in the wake of the film after we had seen what transpired. And then it kind of became true all over again after Endgame. And I think it really speaks to, you know, the the theme today, this idea of balance and and what, what is required in that balancing act. Because, of course, the movie is a culmination or or part of, of the culmination in tandem with Endgame of so much shared experience. And because of that, it inherently 
cannot function on its own. Right. I would say, personally, that that's part of what I love about it. That it feels so wholly connected to everything that came before it. The investment that you've made as a viewer, as a Marvel fan at that point you feel so rewarded. And we, we talk about this all the time. It's one of, you know, it's, it's one of the things we talk about most on, across all of our binge mode seasons. The community that springs up around the story, the way that you can feel when you're watching one of these stories or reading them. This is a thing I love and I get to yeah. share it with other people who love it too. Infinity War feels like such a celebration of that idea and that aspect of ongoing, evolving fandom. So I love that. That's one of my favorite things about the movie. I understand and I acknowledge the criticism. Mm -hmm. That said, one of the great achievements of the MCU is that it is a direct translation, not just an adaption in terms of the content and the characters, but an adaption of a, of a um, style of releasing stories of these kind of crossover events in which multiple solo titles then converge for a big story and that all of that is necessary to understand the big picture. And not only that, but these characters are doing things because of the way all of this is presented. You imagine that they're, that they're having adventures that you don't see that they're, mm-hmm. they're happening off the page that happen between the movies. And that's all part of the experience of reading comics right. and yeah. Feige directly translated that experience into movies. And so while the criticism stands, you can't just jump into Infinity War and be like, wait, what the what are they talking about? Like, yes, of course, that's going to be (gasps) absolutely confusing. Just as if you picked up, you know, Infinity Gauntlet number three or number four or something Mm -hmm. without reading Thanos Quest or Infinity Gauntlet number one, you'd be like, wait, what is he? Why? What happened? Why is he so powerful? So I get it, but this is a, just a different style of storytelling. And it has to be, ju- and to judge it accurately and to understand like why it's such a sensation, you have to judge it on those terms. And I think that that's just a very different way of approaching storytelling through films. It just is. That's, yes. <laughs> that is exactly right. I think that, uh, not to single out any one review, because again, this was, this was, pretty prevalent in the in the reviews of the film. But I think that A.O. Scott's New York Times piece sums up both sides of, of that assessment pretty nicely. So here, here are a couple sample quotes. Considered on its own as a single nearly two-hour, 40-minute movie, Avengers Infinity War makes very little sense apart from the near convergence of its title and its running time. Here's another quote from, from a couple sentences later in the piece. But of course, this film, the 19th installment in a series, was never meant to be viewed or judged in isolation. I'll also just quickly share, even though it's not pertinent to this particular discussion point, an absolutely iconic line from this piece that I I love reading. This synergistic expression of the corporate interests of Marvel Studios and the Walt Disney Company, which now includes 19 feature films and much else besides, has come to be less a creative or commercial undertaking than an immutable fact of life, like sex or the weather or capitalism itself. I would love for me for sex to be an immutable fact of life. That sounds great. I think that that line is, first of all, okay. I think that that is an accurate analysis of 
not just Marvel's strategy, but Disney's strategy going back to Walt Disney when he made that famous chart about the synergies between all of Disney's properties, which you can find online somewhere. That's a really smart assessment because I think it feels very much like a product of the modern hyper IP expanded universe age. And it is, of course, but it also connects back to that, that past, that kind of fundamental DNA. Absolutely. And so while that that line is really a pithy and, again, a cutting analysis of 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 the kind of corporate interests that underpin these stories. Right. Which, again, Uh is not new and has existed for decades, literally is how Walt Disney built his company. Right. And it's not and then they're not alone in that. Disney is not alone. in that. I guess I, I would then say, so what? Like, okay, but what? Bad, good it's destroying storytelling. This is driving us like over a uh, a cultural edge. Like, okay, you've laid it out, but like, so what? This is how we make movies now and have for a while. I guess it's like, if you hate it, just tell me you don't like it and why. But like, don't lay it out like this is what it is and then just kind of leave it there without commenting on what does it mean? Yes, that's a that's a, this is how the business works at this moment. But what about it? The Scorsese quote obviously came after Infinity War. Right. But there's that. Marty's, Marty's like 80. I wouldn't if he liked Marvel movies. Honestly, that would shock me more. In his scene on opening night. Take it in the snap. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, but but Steve and Bucky, they were just together again. Oh, no. But, you know, there's a certain aspect, of course, of the filmmaking community and and of the consumer community that is going to say, well, what does it mean if so much of storytelling right now is tied up in this mass franchise effect? Is there room for a more tour style of storytelling? And, you know, now, I mean, if we fast forward a couple of years, that is of course, compounded by the state of the movie theater industry amid the pandemic and the effect of streaming. And there are all of these factors that feed into that. And I think that you're right, though, to identify that there's, of course, this is like an intellectual pursuit. It is a cultural criticism pursuit. There's a, a ton to explore and examine and attempt to process. At the end of the day, some people just, this isn't for them. They don't like comic book stories or superhero movies. And that's fine, right? That's fine. But for the people who do, what a treat this is. What a treat this is. Let's get to that question of stakes for a minute, Jay. You know, the the question of, uh, okay, the rational part of your brain asking yourself, even as you're watching the snap and even as you're watching these characters turn to ash, could those deaths be real? Could they last given the passing of the torch nature of this part of phase three, the end of the Infinity Saga. T'Challa, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, thinking about the characters who vanished and the characters who remained. Yes. If you stop to think about it for a minute, you said, okay, this is probably not gonna <laughs> not gonna be where this nets out. They're gonna come back. Did that minimize its effectiveness for you? Well, first of all, as a longtime comics reader, again, it, it, and there was never a moment in time where I'm like, they're dead, right? right. 
we got that. I think that I understand the criticism that many have, you know, George R. R. Martin with this yes. famous quote about uh, how disappointed he was when Gandalf came back, right. which is, I, I get that. And I, and I understand that. And I think that that is a valid criticism about these stories. I also think that, you know, it's kind of like criticizing Damian Lillard for taking a half court three. That's kind of how this game is played. You know, this is what it is. This is part of it. And for me, part of the thrill in a different way than when I'm reading a novel or reading a, a fantasy novel where I don't know if any of these characters are going to make it. For me, part of the thrill is how are they going to solve this problem? How are they coming back? How is that going to work out? That is part of the excitement for me with these films. So while I get it, certainly they're lower stakes and we can we can use this as a, a, a springboard to criticize like corporate IP and corporate control of stories and and uh, Disney writ large. But this is just kind of how these stories are told. And this, again, goes back beyond Disney's control of Marvel properties. Um, it goes back to comic books in general. Like this is how comic book stories have always kind of been told. And so I get it. Does it bother me? Not particularly because, you know, these types of stories have always been on some level about wish fulfillment and, and fantasy storytelling. And so like, I don't, it does not, it does not, uh, irk me as it does others. But I understand the critique and I appreciate it. Very well put. I, I'm i glad you mentioned our dear George. Not only because it gives us a chance to quickly say, fuck yeah, Dunkin' Egg, let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> I can't wait. I didn't understand when they, when Gandalf <laughs> the White, I thought, oh, how, how, how great would it have been if oh, Gandalf wow. George just voice. died there? A while. If he would have just died <laughs> one of my favorite george takes is why did they bring gandalf back it's <laughs> iconic and george's 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 read on on tolkien and lord of the rings it's is a quite a very rich and layered text uh, yeah i like it quickly while you're doing your george voice just say say pink mask where, where it's did, been too long yeah, why <laughs> where did aragorn shit where did they poop Oh, what was the, uh, you know, what was what was the uh, uh, economy of Minas Tirith? <laughs> where was a, where were all those people going to the bathroom? Did the poop uh, was the poop transferred down in a sewer? Was there did the river take it away? For the sake of fairness, that that was basically your question after you watched Tenet. <laughs> you, have become, you have embodied George's spirit in full. <laughs> Asking the same hard-hitting questions. <laughs> yeah, did the poop go back in? That's all. When you're in the backwards, when you're going backwards to the timeline, the poop, the poop goes back in, does it not? You catch the poop <laughs> with your butt. That's all. It reminds me of, uh, you know, speaking of Thanos memes, the, the pre-endgame theory that they'd beat Thanos by having Ant-Man crawl inside of his ass. Anyway, what I was <laughs> going to say is that I'm glad you brought up George because it's important to remember that we watched yeah. these movies in the 2010s at the, the the height of Thrones mania. And part of, of course, what was so gripping about the Thrones experience was the idea that 
the main characters, the people you had gotten that attached to, could die and then be dead for real. I think that the distinction you're drawing between the mediums is a, a a really good one. And I think more broadly, it's just that not every story has to function the same way. We love that about Game of Thrones. Right. It's one of it's one of the things we probably that's spent the makes most so time great. talking about. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that's what had to happen here. You know, there's a there's an interesting Feige quote from uh, uh Anthony Bresenkin piece from EW back in the day. The notion of an ending, this is the Feige quote, the notion of a finale became very intriguing to us in large part because you don't see it that often in this particular genre. Yeah. I think that's fascinating yeah. to actually say that out loud, right? How unusual and how uncommon something definitive and final would be. I think whether you're talking about right when you finish watching Infinity War or processing it anew after Endgame, after Cap on your left, every character coming back through the portal. To me, it's two things. One, it's not that it minimizes the effectiveness. It's the opposite to me. It makes it more of an achievement that the end of Infinity War, the end of this movie, hits as hard as it does and feels as impactful and, and gutting as it does, despite the fact that the logical part of your brain is telling you it can't stick. It won't last. You still <laughs> feel that way. And that's that's incredible. The other thing for me is that I don't think that stakes only take one shape. Like, why is that's it that point. life and yes. death is the only way that a story can have can have stakes? I think that seeing a character like Tony Stark, who we have spent a decade of our lives watching evolve and mature and grow in his very unique way have to spend five years carrying the weight of that failure. And then in a moment where he knows that there's a chance that they could change things, having to assess what it would mean to try to bring back the people that he loved if it risked someone else that he loved. If those aren't stakes, I, I I don't know... What, what What is a stake? Absolutely great point. Stakes are, you know, a, a friendship can be a stake. Losing yes. that friendship, putting that at risk. A relationship could be a stake. And certainly those are important stakes throughout the MCU is this group of friends that become an extended family and right. them being able to remain together. The, the Avengers breaking up was a stake. You know, I think that, number one, great point. Number two, I think Ernest Hemingway has ruined so much about storytelling uh, in our minds. <laughs> and I think one of the ways he has done that is uh, the quote, what is the quote? Uh, Every true story ends in death, <laughs> which I think I, I think some some of us have taken that too closely to heart. But I think that they, that's a great point. It's a great point. Death is not the only stake. Life ends in death, but there are a lot of a lot of steps and hopefully a lot of meaning along the way. You know, think of, think of a character like Thor, seeing the 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 grief that he carries with him, all the loss that he has suffered, the impact that mourning has on him, and also the way that he is thinking about his own what he perceives as his own failure. That's a human story inside of a mass, grand comic book story, and I I love that part of it. Thor is as good of a on-ramp as any character into spending a couple more minutes here quickly talking about that idea of, of pairings and balance, the real magic of this movie coming from 
the brew, the, the, the surprising brew of which characters were paired together in which sequences. And this is present in, in every conversation about how they thought about the movie they were trying to make. They knew that this was one of the things on which the alchemy and calculus of the movie hinged. And it's interesting to, to learn that it, it really evolved across drafts, that they didn't, they didn't have it right. Of, of course, you would think, like, how hard would it have been to figure this out right. exactly? But that they didn't have it right right away, and it took a while to get there. There's an interview with The Hollywood Reporter's couch. Marcus, this is a quote from Marcus. We're always torn between, do you want to pursue a pairing in a relationship that you saw before and let it develop and deepen, or... Do you want to have a fresh one? And sometimes the knee jerk is, no, we've seen them together before. Let's switch it up. But that keeps it on kind of a first date emotional level. Whereas if you've seen them together before and now you take them to a much more dire situation and they are together again, you can really get down into the meat of their relationship. So we kind of oscillated between those two poles for a little while. That sums it up perfectly because you do have pairings where you're with people who have been together for a long time and you do feel that deepening. Tony and Pepper's conversation, even though they're not together for long, is one of the the myriad examples. And then you have people who had never been on a ship together before or in a room together before or on a planet together before. And that balance is pretty masterful. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, that's just part, again, it's just really part of the fun of these movies is once you've expanded this cast of characters to include all these different beings from all these different movies and you bring the Guardians you know, in from space. Um, now you can just really have, you can just really have a great time uh, having these characters have little moments together. Super fun. You know, Thor going off to Nineveh with Groot and Rocket is like, great. I love it. I want to do this again and again. Thor introducing Groot to Steve Rogers. This is my friend, Tree. Tree. I am Groot. <laughs> I am Steve Rogers. In the middle of this fight, it's just like those uh, small moments, which, again, first state level, uh, literally to the level of introducing yourself to a person. Right. uh, Even that has its thrills and is part of the reason I love this movie so much. Not to mention the the Chris Wars commentary that we get, you know, the, the jealousy that Quill feels when everyone is gushing over Thor's muscles and how handsome he is. And then even like, even Hemsworth and Evans have the, I see you copied my beard (laughs) exchange in the middle of battle. So, and again, that's an old bond and then a new bond. And it's, it's all providing this joy. I think one of the things that's also really cool to learn about is how the screenwriters from across the MCU franchises work together in real time to kind of catch up on what was evolving across films. Like when we did our Ragnarok pod, of course, we talked about one of the best things that happens in the first three phases of the MCU is unlocking that charisma with Chris Hemsworth's performance and that comedic aspect of, of Thor. The screenwriters and the filmmakers for Infinity War, they consulted I love a this. lot this of great. other people with a couple interesting examples Funny Thor. We'll stick with with Thor for a minute. McFeely told THR's couch, quote, Hemsworth came to set and went, you guys really need to understand that we are doing something different with Ragnarok. 
And we knew they were changing it some, but it was so early in the process. So we flew Ragnarok screenwriter Eric Pearson and director Taika Waititi in, and we had long conversations with them. There are at least a couple jokes in there. Taika himself said in passing that we thought were gold. Great. They it's showed us so a few good. scenes. We knew that Thor was being retoned and we needed to embrace that. I Imagine that. if that hadn't happened and the Thor we got in this movie was like Dark World or Ultron Thor. I mean, Ultron Thor gives us some laughs, but broadly, that would have been bizarre, a bizarre regression. Again, uh, just a, a, a really amazing nugget and a, and a real embrace of this kind of serialized storytelling long form taking place over years and multiple iterations of of. Uh, of almost like embracing an issue like comic book issue kind of structure that is uh, a a really wonderful adaption of the way comic book stories are told. It's really cool. It's really cool and just makes a lot of sense. I love this one too about how Gunn consulted on how the Guardians were deployed because of course this is the first Avengers movie that the Guardians of the Galaxy are in, right? This is a Marcus quote from that same THR interview. Quote, James's contributions were primarily voice related to make sure that we are not rolling out people who bear no resemblance to the people in the preceding Guardians movies. He was on board everywhere we were taking them. He adjusted one choice in the movie that didn't really affect how the movie played out, but it affected character a little bit. It was a very interesting choice. And first, we wavered on it. And then Guardian star Chris Pratt backed him up. And we acknowledged if anyone knows these characters, it's them. I think one of the things that maybe we don't talk about enough is how hard it is to meld these tones. You know, I think we think of Marvel movies now as, oh, they're funny. Yes, sure. But you've got all these characters. Their their individual movies have specific kind of like emotional ranges. Cap being more serious. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy being more funny. Iron Man being more serious. Putting all those things together and having it all make sense in one stew is really hard. Like, I, not to bring DC into this, but think about the way it's like you've got a Batman who is this grim and dour and dark character and then trying to meld his energy with all the others and how difficult that can be. And the fact that Marvel, like, carries it out, very high degree of difficulty, and they managed to do it. Black Panther, much more serious, less comedic put them together with these other characters that can be a little bit more lighthearted. It's like amazing that it all works that they managed to make it work. To, to pull all that off when everything like that is, is evolving so quickly and simultaneously is really amazing. And then I think the other thing that's interesting with the Russo brothers, because of what you're saying there, the different tones, the different intents of the franchises, the different hands that they were in, the Russo brothers had made, t- and Marcus and Ophelia had written all the Captain America movies and the Russo brothers had directed two of them. So Cap is their character. And Cap is obviously one of the central figures in the entire MCU. And it seems like that, you can feel in their interviews almost how that weighed on them, like not wanting to make it too Cap central and the initial impulse to almost overcorrect in the other direction. Like they, they talk on the director's commentary, really wild nugget that they did not have Captain America coming into Infinity War at first until the final battle, after Vision is stabbed in the final battle. Quote, this is from McFeely, there was a point, there was a draft where that tackle was Cap's first appearance in the movie. They called us insane. Then Marcus says, it was not satisfying. McFeely says he was very (laughs) underground. Imagine 
a version of this movie where Cap isn't behind that train in Edinburgh, isn't there to reunite the Avengers. It's really interesting because I can understand, I think, the impetus because, listen, when Cap shows up, he's the leader. And it doesn't matter who else is on the field. There have right? to be trade-offs in right? a movie with this many players. Yeah. So I can understand the impetus to be like, okay, let's hold him in reserve because as soon as he shows up, the center of gravity shifts right. and every eye turns to Steve Rogers and characters as yes. disparate as Asgardian gods and kings of entire nations will look to him and say, what do we do? Right. right. But I'm glad <laughs> Again, I'm glad that they did it this way. And one of the cool things about the structure of Endgame, of, of Infinity War is because you have this battle on two fronts, we get to see, okay, how is how does Tony Stark fare as mm -hmm. the leader of an extended group of heroes without right. Steve Rogers there to be the kind of like strategic backstop? That's one of the cool things about this movie. So you get to see different leaders emerge in different areas. That's a great point. I love that. Very, very, very quickly. We're going to talk about these, these next few things much more in our next episode, but a teaser here. Thanos had yeah. to land the villain in this movie. Had to. They had to absolutely crush it. And, you know, I, I, I remember being thrilled with the, with the introduction of Thanos at the end of Avengers, but also a bit like, hmm, I wonder yeah. how they're going to, pull this off because he is his he's got a super weird thing which he is in love with death <laughs> and wants to kill everybody uh the infinity gauntlet the infinity stones soul gems in the comics initially are so powerful that you uh, i remember wondering well how will they do it mm -hmm. because they're just unbelievably almost overpowered Right. Like how Captain America just has a shield and he punches people. How is he, what is he going to do against someone who can just kind of like make everything not exist? And I think that they carried it off really well. And then Thanos is, you know, his ideology is yes. laid out pretty starkly. And I think that's one of the most compelling things about him. You know, like just uh, thinking back to the conversations we had uh, around Endgame and around Infinity War and those movies came out on this pod. Does Thanos have a point? Just the fact that you can have that conversation means, yeah, Thanos, good villain. Right. Great job. Totally. And then you add into the mix the relationship with Gamora, that history, the hu humanity for her, Nebula. The Infinity Stones, we enjoy obviously talking about the mythology and the lore around them, yeah. the way that they function, where they come from, tracing them across time. In the MCU, they are the prime MacGuffins. And so it's actually essential that we not get to the point where after teasing Thanos for movie after movie after movie, phase yeah. after phase, he's just an embodiment of force and might. Like there has to be a, a deepness and a richness to the portrayal that basically makes that payoff feel sufficient. And I, I think they pulled it off. I'm excited when we get to the next part of the Infinity War pod to talk about Loki a little bit because seeing Loki and Thanos together really gives you a lot to process there. But it's interesting that, again, given how many characters are in this movie and given that it's, it's the, the big ones, right? The people making the movie thought of Thanos as the main character of this movie. There's a Feige quote 
from an interview with Collider's Matt Goldberg, where he said, Thanos in Infinity War is in a movie that has a lot of characters. You could almost go so far as to say he is the main character. And that's a bit of a departure from what we've done before. But that was appropriate for a movie called Infinity War. McFeely, similar sentiment in an interview with THR's Heat Vision, quote, in many ways, this is Thanos's hero's journey. What a fascinating way to put it. So that's, we, really, that's really interesting. So we wanted him to be a rich character. He's basically the protagonist of the movie. Brolin's performance is obviously elemental to making that possible. Really needed to nail the visual effects, which of course had evolved over the course of the films. I mean, Thanos looks quite different than when we first saw him. He looks great in Infinity War. Like you can, I, I almost feel like I can reach out and touch his little his sandy skin. With a little scrotum, scrotum chin. chin. Blast that nutsack right off your face. Shouts to, to Dan Deleuze's visual effects team. Really incredible. We're going to talk much more about whether Thanos has a point and what makes him such a com- compelling villain in our next episode. But Jay, we've been largely laudatory and I think that will continue to be the case. There yeah. are, it's just worth saying here. Sure. To borrow a rewatchable-ism, few Nits to pick. So yeah. picking nits. That's fine. Just a few. Let's start. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think the obvious place to start is this timeline. Little bit naughty. Little bit of a mess. Two years. Uh, some of our characters have been on the run for two years. Bruce Banner has been away from Earth for several years. How... Does this comport with all the other things going on? Let me just first also say, as a again, as a comics reader, I don't. This is I'm used to this. <laughs> You're but it does not, it. I, I'm used to it. I'm used to there being like a like an asterisk in a in a panel that's like the events that these characters are talking about happened uh, between the pages of Spider Man uh, number twelve, pages uh, twelve and thirteen. Like, that's normal. It is absolutely a mess. Okay, there, there are a couple different things. I mean, in general, the phase three timeline around this around this this point, as we mentioned in our homecoming pod, where... The homecoming's flat out doesn't homecoming make Homecoming is set in the future after Infinity War. Yeah. Things get a little naughty. Yeah. I think that there's, there's some of it like, okay, obviously, once Infinity War begins, Thanos has to find the stones pretty quickly for the rest of the movie to happen. But it is a little bit difficult to rationalize how fast that gauntlet fills with the fact that we hear him say, fine, I'll do it myself in the stinger of Ultron, which is set three years. And again, like the, the, how many months are attached to a year? So is it more like two years? Is it more like three years? Broadly speaking, multiple years before this movie. It's like, what was he doing all that time? Research? I guess just like killing other planets and stuff. You know, like looking for the gems or getting his forces together. It's very unclear. I find myself thinking about this, you know, when Sam says, well, the you know, the accommodations weren't exactly like four star. Where were they staying? Like... What were they doing? What were they doing for money? Like, how are they getting cash? Was this like uh, Nick Fury Venmoing them from his like <laughs> one of his many shield slush funds that like right. still exist and are known only to him? Right. A great question. Just the minute to minute reality of what life on the run would have been like yeah. for them. But but like also like, OK, so the Russos say that Infinity War is set two years after Civil War, which 
Civil War is a year after Ultron. We know from Bruce's established timeline that Ragnarok is two years after Ultron, but Ragnarok ends at the exact same moment that Infinity War begins. What is the explanation for that? Just the the amount of time they've been on the ship, I guess? Six months on the Statesman? Let's not forget that Black Panther takes place like a day after Civil War. I mean, (laughs) it's like uh, putting it on a timeline is a mess. But again, (laughs) it doesn't matter that much, but it's funny. And this is why. In at least in comics, you often have, you know, every couple of years now, Marvel or DC will just like be like, okay, let's reset everything because the timelines are just absolutely crazy. They don't make any sense. Uh, It it, like characters are responding to things that shouldn't have had like, let's just like reset everything because of this. It's an it's an interesting bit of dissonance as a viewer where on the one hand, I want more precision. And on the other hand, I know that introducing more will only create more problems. Like, <laughs> yeah. for for example, we know when we're on Sakaar in Ragnarok, we hear them say how long it would take to travel via spaceship to, to, yeah. to Asgard. We know that that journey would take months, right? So that actually is like helpful. And that going through the, the devil's anus is what allows them to get there so quickly. So you could say, okay, well when we get to the stinger in Ragnarok where Sanctuary 2 arrives, months have passed, multiple months have passed. I'd like to be told that. I'd like to understand how long they were aboard that ship. The flip side is pretty much every time a specific, you know, eight years later kind of time card comes up, it just creates a problem down the road. So timeline's an absolute mess, exacerbated by things like retconning when Iron Man was supposed to take place. It's all fine, but... It's it's wildly I mean, listen, confusing at again, the same time. There's a lot. There are there are a lot of things. I think uh, we talked earlier about like having to judge these films kind of like along their own merits, and because they're just so hard to compare to other things. One of our criteria, one of our things about storytelling and sort established worlds of the universe, yes. the Bifrost is broken like a million times, but then Heimdall can call it with just the sword. But it was broken at one time and now Thor can call it with Stormbreaker. What? Like, it's just like all of this is 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 just so wacky. (laughs) And it's like if you really scratch the surface of some of it, but it's also fine because you love the characters so much. Speaking of characters, that's a good a good segue here. Oh, Viz. Now, listen, no shade. okay? I think everything you said earlier about how much it shreds you to watch Wanda process what has to be done is right. I agree with it. I'm looking forward to talking more about their their arc and their relationship in our next episode. However, I love Infinity War. I think I've made that clear. I think a lot of the movie hinges on not being willing to let Vision die. Let Vision die. I mean, he actually says to Cap, like, why isn't it any different than you taking the Valkyrie down yeah. into, into the ice? And then more broadly, you know, again, I think Nebula's arc, especially in Endgame, is, is very rewarding. So I, I love these characters, all of them, and I like that they all get their time. But a lot of Infinity War, I do feel compelled to note, hinges on characters being unwilling to let characters that they don't have a lot of history with, who don't matter nearly as much to the the broad scope of the story, and who in some cases, like Moro and Nebula, they have, for 
a long time actively despised not wanting to let anything happen to them. Like Gamora tells Quill to kill her rather than let the knowledge of the Soul Stone fall into Thanos' hands. But 10 seconds seeing Nebula in peril is enough to completely unwind that level of discipline. Again, there's a human aspect to that that I like, but are we sure we can't just let Vision die? I'm sorry. I just have to say it. <laughs> wow. Tough, tough look for my guy, Vision. I I'm mean, listen, to, to go to, you know, along these lines, the uh, we don't trade lives. We won't trade Vision's life for uh, safety from Thanos. We effectively traded Vision's life for the X amount of Wakandans who were mowed the fuck down on the field of battle by various genetically enhanced monsters and those fucking huge blender tanks. How many of them died so they could like try and successfully pry the stone out of Vision's head with him remaining alive? And by the way, you didn't even manage to do it. Right. Well, and then, of course, right. I mean, that's a great point. And then the actual math of the snap itself, which they they knew what Thanos wanted. So they knew what was at risk. That's a pretty clear cut and dry trolley problem. Oh, yeah. It just is. I expect Captain America to make a better choice. And frankly, if he didn't have the beard, I'd I'd be angrier with him than I am. (laughs) I mean, I'm angry at Quill. I have not I've not stopped yeah. since seeing this morning, in the theater being pissed at Quill. It's like, come on, man. We're about like you can deal with this after we get the glove off him, then you can like kick his ass. Just, and then it'd actually be easier and more satisfying. But like, let's not do this now. Mantis can barely hold on to him. He might be bragging about how Tony's plan sucks and Quill and his Quill's own plan is great, but we know established canon. He probably only has 12% of a plan. And yes. that was borne out as usual. I got another one for you. And I don't mean to sound like a monster here. No, it's okay. Hear me out, okay? Would it be that hard to get the soul stone? Like, I'm not saying it would be easy for me personally to get the soul stone. Right. But are we really supposed to believe that nobody else who made their way there was prepared to make that sacrifice? You got to figure like extrapolating over infinite worlds, infinite beings. I guess the one, like obviously the bottleneck is one, finding it, right? So you got to find it. But clearly like Gamora, if listen, if Gamora found it, (laughs) no shots, but if Gamora found it, it's findable. I love her. She's very competent, smart alien being. Obviously, her opsec, you know, it's like she told her sister who tried to murder her about it. Like right. it was out there. The information was out there. It was findable. So I agree. That's that is a that's a good one. And I think like the commentary is obviously effective that you're supposed to think of Thanos as this horrifying, vicious, evil right being and the fact that he has this what he would consider at least real love and what the soul stone and uh, would consider love for Gamora that deemed it a, a true sacrifice is obviously not redeeming but deepens the humanity on offer for you to consider i think that now, the other side of that implication though is that no one else in pursuit of that power would have possessed that level of depth and humanity which i can't i can't 
I can't believe. There's another wrinkle to this, which I, in the comics, nobody knows what the gems are except for Thanos. Thanos is the only one who's like really figured yeah. out what their what their that, true right. nature is. So I guess there's there's that aspect too, where but now that, okay, quite, hold on though, the information on, is though. much more much more accessible about what they are in the Marvel in the MCU. That said, there could also be there could also be an explanation where it's like yes, you could go get the Soul Stone, but what does it do and how do you use it and is it that big a deal? Like maybe people just legitimately because in the mcu people know i mean we hear odin's explanation thor of course as soon as he has his vision and ultron is like this is what these are this is what it means this is what we have to do wong had his powerpoint ready to go <laughs> you agree they all know about it <laughs> okay got one more for you and my my question here was does one in 14 million 605 really work is it really possible that there would only be one outcome that would lead to victory but and i'm we're going to talk about that a lot more in our next episode and the the choice and destiny dynamic at play there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we must note that in the process of, pre- of prepping this pod zach cram of course chimed in to say that of course one wasn't the issue the issue was the 14 million too low here is his rant he used the word rant. I care less about the one than the 14,605. This makes no sense. Strange says he goes into the future to view, quote, all the possible outcomes of the coming conflict. The conflict doesn't end for another five years in the MCU timeline. And there are almost certainly some possible future timelines in which it lasts longer than that. Maybe the rat waits longer to stumble across Lang's keyboard, or maybe they take more time to invent a time travel device, etc. So Strange ostensibly views every set of outcomes based on five plus years decisions made by a huge constellation of characters. And any decision tree of this nature should inherently split exponentially at each branch. There should be trillions of possible outcomes at a minimum. Strange was slacking on the job if he stopped at 14 million. Stephen Strange, read A Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury Challenge. Maybe there's a future in which the Avengers win and Tony doesn't have to die, but Strange just got lazy and never watched that possibility. End quote from Zach Cram. <laughs> Let me just stop. Here's, okay, number one. Uh, amazing. We call that a Zacked around here. I, I, so Strange, I'm going to defend Strange now. Number one, I think that there is no, uh, uh, clearly there would be trillions of possible outcomes, you know? How many of those outcomes are just like, okay, uh, Cap takes a shit before the fight, but then in the other outcome, he takes a shit during the fight and he shits his pants. And that, like, you can kind of just like call those out. Like, if the outcome is essentially the same, oh, you but think in this the was his edited down report? I think one, it, it's possible that some of those are like, well, it doesn't matter if, uh, if uh, Scott spills the taco in this one but doesn't spill the taco in the other you know what i mean like that there's stuff that doesn't matter in some of the variations that's one Hmm. two i mean you try going through 14 million like i understand he has the time stone and it's he's able to compress that it's still a lot that's a lot he went out 14 million and of course like there would be trillions of others and maybe there was like one or two other possibilities. But 
Zach is being disingenuous and I think he's smarter than this. He understands. <laughs> no, I'm serious because like when you do a poll, you don't ask everybody in the world. You ask a selection of people. And so you, you think this is a representative sample. Exactly. Okay. If you go 14 million deep and get one outcome, guess what? It's going to be hard to find the second one. I'm excited for for Zach's fact checking notes on this. <laughs> I think this, this is, is I think strange in 15 seconds. Searching 14 million outcomes is kind of a big deal. I think he did a great <laughs> job. I think it was representative. Oh. And hey, it all came out in the wash. It all came out like if you're looking for not only that, but it was that hard to find the one outcome in which only one guy died. One mm. guy. Now you're asking, can we find the outcome in which nobody dies? Probably a lot harder, right? We don't I have think that also kind of Dr. Time. Strange is not focused on whether one person has to die. He's focused, unlike many of our other Avengers in this movie, well, on saving half of existence well, I, I mean that's a great point too right if, if what if ostensibly if there were more outcomes there would be an outcome that was maybe easier to accomplish or more likely to succeed where five or six or more people die right right more good guys couldn't find that and strange straight up said listen if you or peter have to die for me to stop Thanos. That's what has to happen. I'm, I won't even blink. I will let you go. Strange is not like, you know, like a, his heart is not bleeding over this. Protecting your reality, douchebag. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to defend Strange here. I think, I like, again, you try searching 14 million fucking outcomes and see how you do. I think, <laughs> I think he did a great job. It's a representative set. It's not like an infinite set. Like, again, with the trillions of outcomes, I think that there are probably more than that. It's like, I, I think you could probably say there's infinite outcomes. So he should have searched like infinitely. He'd still be there. <laughs> he did what he had to do. They were under the gun. Amazing. Jason. Yes. What did it cost? Everything. Well, in that case, might as well gather up the masters of the Mystic Arts and head to the Sanctum Sanctorum of your choosing. Maybe not the one with the giant Hulk-sized hole in the ceiling. Tell us everything we need to know about the Infinity Gauntlet comics canon that inspired this movie. the mad titan is a messy bitch <laughs> always has been born to a family of eternals on titan uh, a moon of saturn or a small planetoid of saturn in orbit around saturn thanos from an early age has been obsessed with death and not death like in the movie as in the inevitable end which awaits all living things but marvel's embodiment of death a black robed skeleton Occasionally uh, covered with skin in the, in the visage of a, uh, a brunette woman, still with the black robes, which Thanos has been for years extremely obsessively, toxically smitten with. Seeking to impress and honor his skelebae, Thanos launched his most famous scheme to extinguish half the living beings in the universe. The story begins 
in the Thanos Quest, a two-issue limited series published in September and October 1990. The issues act as the lead-in to the Infinity Gauntlet, the comic event on which Infinity War and Endgame are primarily based. Quest and Gauntlet were written by Jim Starlin, the artist and writer who created Thanos for Marvel, and who as much as anyone except arguably Jack Kirby defined the company's cosmic aesthetic. In the Thanos quest, the Mad Titan returns to life after perishing in 1977's Marvel 2-in-1 annual number two, and he comes back with a new understanding. Thanos has been trying for a long, long time to impress death, to kill lots of people so that he can be with her. And each time he tries to do it, he gets defeated and he is killed. Now, back amongst the living, and after gazing into the Infinity Well, for a long time, he knows what he has to do. He has to become more powerful. Even the power of the Cosmic Cube, which he attempted to wield in order to fulfill his, his plans, was not enough. He needs more. Quote, what I seek now is a method to refine and increase those talents in order to serve death all the better. I wish to search out the six objects through which to focus my awesome might, the six soul gems. Now, soul gems? What? So they were called soul gems and one of them was the soul gem? Yes, it's confusing, which is why Thanos very soon within this story arc would rename these jewels by their current and more famous title, the Infinity Stones or Infinity Gems. The six stones are spread out across the universe, each in the possession of a very, very, very powerful being. The in-betweener, the manifestation of the duality, the gray areas between light and dark, good and evil, held the soul stone. And the five remaining beings were members of the elders of the universe, powerful immortal creatures who draw their power from the energies of the Big Bang and are among the oldest living things in existence. The champion, who can shatter planets with his fists, held the power stone. Ord Zions, the gardener, held the time stone. He dedicated his life to spreading plant life across the vastness of space and seeding dead planets and keeping a beautiful garden. Our good friend Tana Lear Teven, the collector, has in his vast museum the Reality Stone, one of his most prized possessions. The mysterious being known as the Runner can think and move at speeds that approach the speed of light and might even be faster than it. It's, there's no defined upper limit in the Marvel canon. He held the Space Stone. And then lastly, the Mind Stone was in the cunning and dangerous hands of the super strategist, the Grandmaster. Thanos travels across the multiverse through dimensions beyond counting to the nexus of reality, the hinge point of all that is, the fulcrum of existence, the shared realm of chaos and order. Two other cosmic beings. Their chaos and order kept the in-betweener imprisoned, guarded by powerful demons. Thanos easily banishes the demons. Chaos and order, like, up your security. Thanos <laughs> came in and just, like, looked at the demons and they just were banished. He tells the in-betweener that he is a slave of death, kind of true, and he wishes to be free from her service, not at all true, and he needs a big, powerful man like the in-betweener to be his new protector and match death's strength so he doesn't have to serve death anymore. So Thanos offers the in-betweener a deal. He will free the in-betweener if... The in-betweener will then be his protector. And the in-betweener is like, ha, 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 this dummy. As soon as I'm out of here, I'm going to turn on. So the in-betweener accepts. 
because, you know, he is vastly more powerful than Thanos. Ah. Still, Thanos is no slouch, and with their combined power, the two manage to break down chaos and orders imprisonment wards. Once free, the in-betweener is like, ha-ha, he turns on Thanos, but guess what? Though he could obliterate Thanos with a mere gesture, his powers don't work. They don't work in the realm of chaos and order. The Nexus contains none of the dualities from which the in-betweener draws his strength. Thanos knew this. Somehow the in-betweener didn't. Didn't understand how his own powers work. You (laughs) dummy. Thanos absolutely smacks the in-betweener around and then just takes the soul stone and leaves. On to the next. Next is the champion. The champion is very, very, very strong and not very, very smart. And he is in the midst of fighting the armies of an entire planet single-handedly when Thanos comes up on him. Thanos toys with the champion. Frustrated, increasingly enraged, the champion reels back and hits Thanos with a literal Death Star-level haymaker that punches the Mad Titan through the continental shelf, triggering a chain reaction of volcanic explosions that turns the planet into a floating mist of Prius-sized asteroids. I want it all, exclaims the champion. Only Thanos, of course, is totally fine. And now the champion is free-floating in the depths of space without a ship. And Thanos is like, I'm leaving now. Bye. You're just going to float here for a thousand years or until like you float to somewhere else. And the champion is like, okay, well, what about if I fight you for your ship? Thanos is like, why? Why would I agree to that? And then he now he really turns to fly away. And the champion, desperate, begs to be towed to the nearest planet. And Thanos says, okay, on the condition that you give me the stone that you wear on your forehead. Unbelievable. Never functioned anyway, the champion says, and hands over the power stone. Thanos swiftly takes the champion to the nearest planet and then just like throws him out of his craft. And the champion goes crashing through the atmosphere into the planet to either live or die. Who knows? The gardener has of late retired to his magnificent garden where he strolls endlessly tending his wondrous array of plants. Thanos arrives. He asks the gardener, why he no longer involves himself with his fellow elders of the universe. Their goal was always the acquisition of power and yet more power, the gardener says. All I ever truly craved was the peace of my garden. He only ran with the elders in the first place, he says, to get his hands on this infinity stone that he has because his plants never grew so well as when he had the stone. Perfect, Thanos says. That's why I'm here. The gardener attacks Thanos with vines from his plants. Thanos shrugs these off. Poor gardener, he says, you have no idea what rests on your brow. None of the elders do, actually. None of them have any idea what it is they're carrying. The infinity gems come from before all recorded time, Thanos says. I believe they might even be the cornerstones of reality. Thanos uses the power stone to amplify the growth of the gardener's plants beyond the elder's control, and the gardener dies impaled on the roots and vines of his own garden. Thanos has the time stone. The collector is in his museum one day, just like gazing, as Scourge would say, on his stuff, more stuff, when his phone rings. Bring, bring. Who is it? It's Thanos. Quote, Thanos of Titan here. (laughs) I take it that you have been expecting my call. Actual dialogue from the comics. This is like when people sign their text messages. (laughs) That's what this reminds me of. It's like Thanos of Titan here. Uh, Now, the collector as you would expect from someone who is like just in 
permanent acquisition mode, right? He is a cosmic cable news junkie. He's keeping track of news, especially when it uh, has something to do with his fellow elders of the universe. He's always on cosmic eBay looking for stuff that's like up for auction. He knows, of course he knows, Thanos wants the stone. And Thanos is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, I know that you occasionally take trades, true? The collector's like, I'm listening. Thanos says, (laughs) what if I trade you something for your infinity stone. And the collector says that item would have to be something truly unique for it to take the place of my infinity stone. Thanos says, I'll call you right back. (laughs) Thanos goes off and defeats the runner, acquiring the space stone. Titan then uses the time stone to de-age the runner into a baby. He takes the baby runner a baby elder of the universe to the collector who just as Thanos planned is like, what? Oh my God, a baby elder of the universe, a one of one PSA 10 baby elder of the universe. I gotta have it. And the trade is made. And now Thanos has the reality stone. And then of course, as soon as the deal is done, Thanos is like, aha, the infancy spell is about to wear off. It wears off. Thanos teleports away as the now adult runner is Beating the collector's ass. Final target, the Grandmaster. The Grandmaster is a strategist and tactician with billions, like literally billions of years of experience in every form of competition found everywhere in the universe, from checkers to video games to warfare. Whatever it is, he is a master at it. He is expecting Thanos, and he knows what Thanos wants, and so when Thanos comes up, he immediately offers a wager. Whoever wins a trial by virtual combat gets the other's stone, or if Thanos loses, stones. The battle, though, taking place in a fully realistic simulation is to the death. Thanos, using a clever bit of camouflage, gets the drop on the Grandmaster, but the Elder cheated. He sabotaged Thanos' virtual armor with a kind of fungus that quickly covers the Titan. Cocoon-like, aha, but Thanos cheated as well. The Grandmaster is facing a robot Thanos, while he was inside the, th- the simulation, the real Thanos picked his pocket of the Mind Stone, and now he has them all. All mine, I control all, the universe belongs to me, Thanos says. Death, of course, just has to fall in love with me now, Thanos thinks omnipotent. He returns to her. Everything initially appears great, where there was once just one throne of bones for Death herself. Now there's two thrones of bones, a twin throne. Thanos ascends the throne thinking, wow, this is it. We're going to spend eternity together, baby. I love you. But death won't speak to him, gives him the cold shoulder. Will only speak to him through her rat minion. The issue, as it turns out, is now that Thanos is much, 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 much more powerful than her. Death is basically Thanos' servant. She hates it. Thanos hates it too. He says, that's not the way I wanted it to be. I desire her love, not subservience. What is a toxic love-struck mad titan to do? Let's get back to that. Doctor Strange is deep in study at 177A Bleaker when he's suddenly disturbed by a terrific crash. Upstairs, among the wreckage, he finds the Silver Surfer. My guy. In our Bruce Banner role. Great danger coming this way. Must be stopped. His arrival could herald the end of the universe. Thanos is coming. Now, In outer space, Thanos, he needs somebody to talk to. Death won't talk to him. He needs a friend. So now he's hanging out with Mephisto, literally the devil, as his confidant. Is this a good idea? Probably not. Questionable judgment here. I think so. Thanos, of course, continues to beg for Death's attention, but gets nothing but silence and the cold shoulder. 
He declares his reverence by love is worship, he says. And to prove it, he conjures a, a huge shrine to her that's just floating out in the vastness of space. Nothing. He uh, then takes to torturing his granddaughter, Nebula, thinking this might gain her favor. Nope. This is rough. It's it's like disgusting. boiling her skin off, boiling her skin like like ruining her mind. She is a, a complete thrall. Her body is just like dissolved. It's awful. What have I done to deserve such rejection? Thanos whines. Perhaps Mephisto replies, "It is what you haven't done that rules the maiden." Oh yeah, that's right. Thanos thinks. What about that promise I made? many issues ago to kill half the universe. And as a stunned Mephisto looks on, Thanos snaps his fingers. And naturally, the results are devastating. On Earth, people are gripped by fear, mourning, and chaos. Planes fall from the sky. At the Avengers Mansion, Captain America, horrified, watches as his teammates disappear. Among the tally of the erased, Hawkeye, Wong, Mentor, Thanos' father, who he very purposefully uh, made disappear because he didn't want dear old dad to figure out what he's doing black panther daredevil the fantastic four the entire fantastic four luke cage and many 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 more now let's pause here for a second there's an obvious strand of of christian evangelical millenarianism in thanos's snap as if the rapture happened but the great calling up was an erasure not a transcendence and it was perpetrated by a god but not the messiah by an obsessive and petty demigod for really no good reason this you know, in 1990 was not a really popular idea. It was a pretty fringe idea. It bears an obvious resemblance, of course, to the uh, extremely popular but pretty awful Evangelical Left Behind series, the first entry of which was published in 1995. And it's about the coming of an Antichrist uh, uh, and the rapture that makes millions disappear and the survivors who are left behind who then have to battle the Antichrist. Sounds familiar, right? It sounds just like like Endgame. This kind of story has deep roots in American Christian tradition. Increase Mather, that's a name, is, was an important figure in uh, the 17th and 18th century uh, Massachusetts Bay colonial politics and was the president of Harvard in his day, along with his more famous son, Cotton Mather. They promoted the idea of a Christian God who was actively involved in human affairs an apocalyptic time of tribulation, which would be followed by a rapture. Their ideas uh, were influential uh, with the Salem witch trials. Uh, the dispensationalist post-rapture subgenre found its most mature expression with The Leftovers, adapted for television by Damon Lindelof from Tom Parada's book from the same name, of uh, first published in 2011. In a sense, Avengers Endgame and Infinity War are the most popular version of this idea, which stretches back to Puritan philosophies of the 17th century. Now back to our story, an alliance of heroes, gods, cosmic entities, and other beings band together to stop Thanos before he can destroy the entire multiverse itself. They include the surviving heroes of Earth, notable among them, Captain America, Doctor Strange, the Hulk, Smart Now, just like in the movie, Eric Masterson, who is pretending to be Thor, which is a super, super long story. So Thor is not involved, but none of the heroes know this. <laughs> Odin and the Sky Fathers, who are the rest of the kind of like uh, folkloric gods from uh, different cultures around the world. Galactus, Chaos and Order, a pair of Celestials, the Silver Surfer, and many, many more. Adam Warlock, who is based on a Jesus Christ Superstar, 
uh, is the leader of the team. And he is like the uh, he's like a, a combination of Doctor Strange and Tony Stark from Endgame. He's the leader and also the strategist. He has a complex plan for defeating Thanos, but he can't tell anyone about it because if he does, it won't happen. Now, this is worth unpacking a little bit. The MCU version of the glove is, I, I think, with a lot of things that are adapted from the comics, pretty powered down compared to its comics version. In the comics, Thanos like doesn't really need to snap to do stuff. He can just like remake reality on the fly. Now, with the Mind Stone, he can read the minds of every living being everywhere in the universe. He can implant things into those minds anywhere, every, anywhere in the universe. Now, Warlock doesn't inform anyone of his plan, most notably the Silver Surfer, for fear that Thanos might stumble on that information while rifling through their minds. Now, you might ask, what about Warlock's mind? Thanos knows me, he explains to Silver Surfer. He'll not risk such a distraction in the midst of battle. Okay, pretty iffy logic, but it does work out, kind of. In Endgame, of course, Strange never tells, he never lays out exactly why or what will happen in his one in 14 million plan, because if he told specifically Tony about it, it wouldn't happen. But it's never really, I guess it's kind of suggested that Tony won't go through with it, but I think he would. Like, clearly he flew up into space with a nuclear warhead on his back. I think he, it's clear, we've, we understand from the MCU that he would lay down on the wire. Preserves it being his choice, though, instead of something that he thinks is predetermined. Right. So this is kind of, this kind of idea exists in the comics as well, all of which is to say. So Thanos in the comics is not just inevitable, which is actually, that's a line from the comics as well. I am inevitable. He is essentially impossible to defeat while wearing that glove. You can't even lay a finger on him. Forget about it. But Warlock has one important insight into Thanos' character. Like most supervillains, he is on some level self-destructive. Some part of him wants to lose which is why his various attempts at universe-altering domination always failed. Even if he has the Cosmic Cube and all this other stuff, he always loses. He wants to lose somehow. Warlock has the heroes launch an all-out frontal attack, sacrificing their lives. So he doesn't tell them this, but like sacrificing their lives as a diversion. Warlock wants Thanos distracted so at the right moment, the Silver Surfer can zip in at the speed of light and swipe that glove. Boy, real like... Rob Stark splitting his troops to take on Jamie and Tywin there. It's the old uh, Statue of Liberty play. It's great. Now, Mephisto plays an important role here. <laughs> Who saw this coming? <laughs> Who saw this coming, right? Hang out with the devil. Guess what? The heroes attack and Thanos freezes time, right? To pick them off at his will. It's so easy for him. He's trying to impress death. She doesn't give a shit. He's like, what do I got to do? I'm beating like all the mightiest uh, heroes in the universe. And Mephisto is like, ha ha ha. I got an idea. What if you make yourself a little bit weaker, thus making it more difficult to defeat the heroes? I bet you then death, those dry bones will get wet. <laughs> And Thanos is like, you know what, devil? That's a good idea. You know what, legitimately, Satan? That's a great idea that you gave me. I will do that. <laughs> and in this way, Warlock and the heroes very, very, very nearly managed to steal the glove from Thanos, but the scheme fails. The heroes are defeated. Now the cosmic deities enter the fray. Galactus, chaos and order. 
the rest of them. Thanos defeats them one by one, eventually facing off against Eternity, the embodiment of the multiverse. Thanos bests Eternity and then takes Eternity's place, leaving his body behind to become the very fabric of the multiverse. Only, I think you see the problem here. Mm-hmm. If he leaves his body behind, who's wearing the glove? This inert body? Nebula shakes herself from her torture-induced stupor, seizes the glove from Thanos' inert body, returns her ravaged body to its healthy state, returns the world to its previous state, and now takes her revenge on Dad. And I have to say, it is a delicious twist. I think considering how important Thanos' relationship was with his daughters, with Gamora and Nebula, not that I have any quibbles with Infinity War or Endgame, two movies that I love. I just think some version of this would have been really, really satisfying. It would have been really immensely satisfying. Anyway, no shots at Tony Stark's uh, hero moment, but I, I would have loved something like this. Anyway. Yeah, that's what Endgame needed. More Nebula. <laughs> anyway, Nebula's lack of experience with the stones and the fact that she was so traumatized from the terrible torture that Thanos inflicted on her provides the necessary opening for Warlock, Warlock gets control of the gauntlet and becomes basically God. The other heroes are like, hold on, Warlock. We're not sure about this. And he's like, don't worry about it. You know my soul. I'm, it's going to be fine. I will not get out of control because I have infinite power. When has that ever happened? Anyway, he sends them all back to their worlds as they're arguing with him about, like, as they're raising their objections about his newfound power, he's like, okay, bye, sends it back. And then he takes himself and Nebula 60 days into the future to an idyllic unnamed planet where they find Thanos living as a simple farmer. And Warlock is like, hey, can I ask you something? How do, what do I do now that I'm so powerful? That is, I don't know about you, but that raises a few questions in my mind. If (laughs) Adam Warlock's big idea is let me ask Thanos for advice. Thanos has advice. His advice is endure or surrender the power. Warlock goes off to find balance in the universe, leaving Thanos alone and strangely at peace. Boy, amazing. Okay, normally this is where we would run through our favorite nuggets in the six and then debate our winner. Those will be coming in part two, as will our thematic discussion of the character arcs. Well, friends, podcasts can be tough. Just as we keep telling Steve Allman, Isaac Lee, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, if you're looking for our past seasons, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars Weekly, they're available for you to listen to in full for free, exclusively on Spotify. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet and explore the rest of the story and that you'll join us again next time for part two of our Infinity War discussion. Until then, remember, a hunk of Hulk of burning fudge is our favorite. If there are other outcomes, not only one where Tony survives, but one where 90% of the heroes die, 50% of the heroes die. The fact that on the first successful outcome that he found in 14 million searches returned one casualty, I'm sorry, that's pretty fucking good. You know what scenario he left out? (laughs) 
You know who's not in Infinity War is Ant-Man. He left out the scenario where they call Ant-Man and have the exploding butt theory. He just left it out. That would have worked. Okay, now answer my question. 14 million. Good enough sample size, correct? To, to then extrapolate out and say that this is a representative slice of the potentialities. Well, it depends what your denominator is. If your denominator oh is in the quadrillions, is, is 14 <laughs> million really go. that big a number? <laughs> <laughs>